and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. My name's Gemma Soul, and my guest in today's episode is Catherine Garrett-Cox, CBE. Catherine is Chief Executive of Gulf International Bank UK Limited. She has over 30 years experience in global asset management and has held senior roles in a number of large corporates. She was Chief Investment Officer at Aviva Investors, it was Morley Fund Management at the time, and what was formerly Aberdeen Asset Management. She was also CIO at Alliance Trust, where she subsequently stepped up and took on her first chief executive role. Catherine also plays an active role in tackling the climate crisis, and she chairs both Clean Air Fund and CDP Worldwide. She was also one of the first business leaders to join the School for CEOs faculty, nearly 10 years ago now. We discussed lots in this interview, from Catherine's early career and first steps into asset management, through to putting the soul back into large corporates and the power of social purpose. We also talked about being a chief executive, leading across cultures, the climate crisis and the positive side effects of the coronavirus for GIB. I hope you enjoy listening. Catherine Garrett-Cox, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Gemma. It's lovely to see you. We've got lots to talk about today, Catherine, um, but I'd like to take us right back to the beginning, to your early career. So, Today, you're Chief Executive at GIB, Gulf International Bank UK, but you actually started off um, at Durham University studying history. So tell me about the journey from history into finance and investment management. Well, um, it's a really good question. I think I'm probably um, a bit of an accidental investment manager in that I studied history at Durham because at the time it was a subject that I had a great passion for. And actually, in, a, in many ways, um, my passion for history and historical events, um, you know, still remains with me today. So for pleasure, I very often read historical books and I love quotes and I love really understanding how what went before will influence the future. But I left university and um, was thinking, right, you know, now what do I do? I mean, I literally had no clue what I was going to do. And at the time, I think, you know, a number of my friends were heading into the city or accountancy or the law. And, you know, I think one of the things that's probably always been a driving force for me has been the environment in which I work and the people that I work alongside. And so um, for various different reasons, I found myself working um, at a company called Fidelity, um, which remains one of the biggest privately owned investment managers in the world. And, you know, they offered me an opportunity to, you know, go in very much at the ground level and um, work alongside a couple of very talented investment managers. And that's really where I started my career um, over 30 years ago. Uh, and I actually can't believe that um, I've been doing it for so long. But I think that in in many ways, you sort of wonder history to finance, is that a natural bridge? Actually, studying history was a great discipline because one of the things you have to do in a history degree is to assimilate a huge amount of factual information and then distill it into something where 
you know, you're reaching a conclusion on why things played out the way they did. So actually, when you then bring that through into the investment world, it's not entirely dissimilar. You have to distill a huge amount of information, um, some of it very fast. Uh, and very often, you have to make decisions on less than 100% of the information. Um, but uh, I regard myself as having been incredibly fortunate to have found myself land in a career that, you know, continues to be fascinating, continues to be interesting. And, you know, I can absolutely promise you that no day has ever been the same. You reminded me when you were talking there of something that Mark Logan talked about last week of laying down the dots and pursuing areas of interest. And then it, in hindsight, you can start to join up those dots and, and some of those skills that you um, developed when you were studying history and accumulating all of that knowledge and then making decisions just reminded me of that. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I definitely thought would, would not obviously be of relevance to me in the future was the fact that a, a significant chunk of the um, first year at university was studying the history of Islam. Um, and I've always had a real fascination for the history of the Middle East, right back from the times of the Crusades, which was quite a lot of the period in history that I studied um, back at university. And it's, it's perhaps um, fortuitous now that that was the case, given that I now find myself working for a Middle Eastern headquartered organization. So I'd like to think that perhaps part of, as you said, joining the dots up has now come full circle. Um, at this point in my career, you know, 30 years after I started uh, back in the city. Wow. Do you think that was fortuitous or do you think that you were drawn drawn towards that because of a, that, that prior interest? I mean, I think it's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I have to say, as, a, as an individual, I'm a huge fatalist. I think things really do happen for a reason, if, even if you can't see it um, at the very beginning. Um, but I think, you know, I, I suppose one of the wonderful things about history is that it takes you across continents, countries and cultures. And I think I've always had, um, you know, inherent fascination for different cultures. And I think one of the really, you know, great privileges of working in the investment world for as long as I have has been that, you know, I've traveled extensively uh, all over the world, visiting companies, visiting people having conversations and I think you know that has just perhaps sort of piqued my interest over the years and, and candidly um, the Middle East was a part of the world that I'd probably spent the least amount of my professional time um, and obviously that um, you know that has, has uh, significantly changed in the past two to three years um, and very much for the better. Fantastic and I'd like to talk about GIB um, later on but before we do I'd like to talk about becoming a chief executive. So you landed your first CEO role at Alliance Trust, a FTSE 250 company at the time. And was chief executive a role that you aspired towards once you started to develop your career in investment management? Um, well, uh, it, it, the, the short answer is probably um, not, not when I joined Alliance Trust. Um, I had had an amazingly um, interesting career before the time that I moved up to Dundee to work for, um, for Alliance Trust. And, you know, I think I'd had the chance to manage money, um, to manage teams of people. 
and then to step up and take more responsibility as chief investment officer for a couple of firms before that, um, both at Aberdeen and at Aviva. Um, so you can see there's a common pattern. I, I have typically joined companies beginning with A. And so when Alliance Trust came calling uh, in Dundee, it actually came at a, a really great time for us um, as a family as well. You know, we'd been thinking about moving out of London. Um, my husband is Scottish, so everything really fell into place. But the role that I was attracted to and, and went to um, to undertake was for uh, a real focus on building up um, the investment side of the business at the time. So it was very much as chief investment officer um, and, you know, in fairly short order, you know, I, I tried to um, make an assessment of the investment capability, the investment philosophy, started to build a team. And then within about a year and a half, um, the chief executive who'd recruited me decided that he wanted to move back to Asia. And it was at that point that the board asked me um, whether I would consider stepping up and, and taking on the role of, of CEO as well. And I have to say, I definitely sort of paused for thought, um, you know, stepping into the role of, of chief executive, you know, at any organization is, is a big step, but to do it in, in a public company um, wasn't something at the time that I necessarily had, had instantly thought about. But I think, you know, as, as time went on and as I reflected on whether or not I felt, um, you know, it was the right fit for me, I thought I could make a difference. And um, I suppose at the end of the day, when you've got a team of people and you have a common mission and you think you're all making a difference, as I believe we absolutely did over the years that I was there, you know, it can be incredibly fulfilling and challenging in equal measure. Um, but it was an extraordinary period of my career. And one, you know, that I'm, I'm really pleased that I stepped up and took that first, that first step, if you like, that first step onto the ledge. And Obviously, you said you, you joined as a member of the executive committee. How, how was that? Do you think that gave you an advantage stepping up and knowing the organisation well and having good rapport with your peers? Or did that actually make it more challenging? I think it probably on balance made it easier. Um, and I also, you know, had the ability to, to build a team of people around me as well, um, which, again, something that I've always been very, very driven by. You know, I think people who think that they can do everything by themselves are very much mistaken. So wherever I've worked, you know, from the very early days when I was at Hill Samuel managing money, right up until, you know, the, the role that I'm doing now, you simply can't do it if you don't have a great team of people. And I think that that is an incredibly important part of leadership, is to understand what you yourself are good at what other people are better at and actually creating that harmonious balance across a team where you're all genuinely working for the good of the organization. So I, I think on balance, yeah, I think it was probably helpful. Mm -hmm. And as you look back, particularly on the early experience as a CEO, were there any surprises um, that you just weren't expecting? I think you know, at the time, um, and this is obviously, you know, going back 2007-2008, there was also something else unfolding that I definitely hadn't predicted, and that was the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So I stepped up into the role as CEO in the autumn of 2008, literally about a month before the global financial crisis hit. So it was um, both 
an interesting and a very challenging time in which to steer a public company through what then became, you know, a massive financial downdraft, um, economic challenges, you know, um, by fiscal and monetary policy uh, moves such that we'd never seen before. Um, I think I'm not sure I could have had much more thrown at me in the first few weeks of becoming CEO. But, you know, what's that great quote? What doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger. And I think it was great learning. Um, I mean, I think so. I was definitely surprised by global events. I think I was also surprised in that, um, you know, there was a lot of interest as to what we were doing um, within the business, which had been in Dundee for, you know, a very, very long time, over 100 years, but perhaps, you know, needed to move with the times a bit. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm really proud of is that we built a great team. I think, you know, we delivered really good returns for our shareholders, but we also, I think, created a soul for the business. We created a heart. We had a thriving community program during the years that I was there. And, you know, Dundee is a wonderful city, um, but like many big cities, it, you know, it has its social problems. So we were active supporters of the food bank on a regular basis. We created a, a program with local schools so that we would go in and support the school leaver years in terms of you know, basic skills, CV writing, how to hold an interview. We had a, a wonderfully successful partnership with the Soldiers Charity, which raised over two million pounds over the years that uh, we were there to raise money for veterans and their families. We created a star foundation from nothing. We had a partnership with Scottish Opera where we did this really wonderful program and we um, ran an opera program for um, dementia uh, sufferers and their carers. So, you know, we kind of built more than a corporate. We created returns. We gave something back to the shareholders, but I think most importantly, we gave something back, which uh, again is, is something that, you know, lives with me very large in terms of a personal driver. I was listening to a call just yesterday where the the group chief exec of Vodafone was speaking and he was talking about the power of social purpose and actually they'd been doing pulse checks and his employees mental health was actually scoring higher than it had pre-COVID because of all the community and the social work that they're doing to support during this time and, and that whole move perhaps it, you were ahead of your time back then but seems now more important than ever for organizations and particularly large corporate to have have a soul as, as you describe well i mean i you know it would be great to think we were ahead of our time um but i think perhaps we were in many ways it wasn't that you know we created a real sense of inner purpose for the for the organization and the people that work there but you know we were one of the relatively few people back then to really talk about the power of socially um, responsible and sustainable investing. And, you know, it, it's fascinating now that, you know, we sit here in a COVID, post-COVID world where everybody in the investment field is talking about the benefits of environmental, social and governance themes. Uh, you know, this is something that we talked about, you know, till we were blue in the face. And I think people wondered whether or not the returns would be better. And now I think there is genuinely... Um, you know, a strong sense that investment, investments with sustainable and responsible philosophies behind them actually are performing better during this period. So I think that, you know, you have to, 
as a CEO, you have to wear multiple hats. But I think at the end of the day, if you're not doing something useful, um, both in a corporate sense and in a social sense, then I think, you know, you're probably in the wrong role. And, um, you know, I'm really encouraged by what I see across the world now in terms of a significant step up in these themes. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You have to have a purpose. Um, you have to have a license to operate. Otherwise, you simply won't attract the right sort of people to come and work with you. And I think people are much more, much more um, clear about the sorts of companies they want to work in now. Another way that you were perhaps ahead of ahead of the game um, at Alliance Trust is in relation to gender representation at the most senior level. Um, I found an article uh, in the FT where you're quoted, and at the time, Alliance Trust had a 60% female board and 40% female top executive team. Um, and you introduced generous maternity benefits when you were chief executive there, and you, you described one of the main challenges as being supporting women through the practicalities of motherhood and childcare. So how, how have you seen the dial kind of shift since 2008 when you joined Alliance Trust and, and lo- looking at the situation now around representation at senior level? Well, I'd like to think we were ahead of our time in this regard. And, you know, in a way, we didn't do it to hit a quota or hit a number. We did it because it seemed like the right thing to do with the people that we had um, either on the board or at the senior level of the business. And, you know, I, I really do believe that gender balance makes a difference. I think you make better decisions Um, I think, you know, but it's not just about gender. I think it's really about mindset. So I think it's about cognitive diversity as much as it is about anything else. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm really proud of what we did back then. We certainly won a number of awards for it. I suppose, you know, you roll the clock forward 10, 12 years and you think, have we made such great progress? Uh, On some levels, yes, we have. Um, on others, I think, you know, there is still only a handful of female CEOs um, at the helm of FTSE companies. So perhaps we haven't made that much difference. Um, I do think that um, on balance, you have to practice what you preach. So, you know, even now I have um, a 50-50 split at the senior level um, within GIB. And again, it's not something that I've worked towards. It's just because these are the best people to lead from the front. And I think it it does make a difference because role models in any walk of life matter to people. And, you know, I definitely think when you're trying to recruit right from the bottom uh, at at the graduate side, you know, people look up through the organization. They want to see, do I look like anybody at a senior level um, or do I look very different? And I think people need something to aim for. So I think we have made progress. But, you know, we've probably got a lot more to go in certain areas and in certain sectors. And let's move on and talk about GIB then. So you're living in between Angus and Aberdeen. Um, GIB UK are based out of London, but the the group are based out of Bahrain. So tell me about leading cross cultures and, and how that experience has been for you so far. Well, it's it's been a rather wonderful experience, I have to say. I mean, I reflected back that 
I'd always had a fascination um, with um, the history of the Middle East. And when this opportunity arose about three years ago, I was really struck by the fact that it was a part of the world that I hadn't spent much time. It was a part of the world where um, there was a broad understanding that the dial needed to shift in terms of moving to a more sustainable development, a more sort of um, environmentally aware world. And one where um, there was an opportunity to build a leading uh, and boutique asset management business out of London. And I, and I have to say that, you know, one of the things I've always enjoyed is building things, you know, building things with other people, I think is one of the most rewarding things you can do. Um, and I've always done that through my career, even in small teams. And so the fact that there was this opportunity to take an organization that had been based um, out of Bahrain, but with a London presence for over 40 years, but to actually put it a little bit more on the map in terms of the investment side to attract third party clients, to stand for something, um, to, to build something rather unique, um, particularly with a focus back into the region, um, was something I just couldn't pass up. So, you know, I have spent a lot of time traveling in the region over the past um, few years since I joined. And I've had the warmest of welcomes. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I have um, experienced things that, you know, I probably didn't imagine that I, I would. Um, I mean, going in and out of Saudi Arabia, you know, even a couple of years ago um, was, was quite novel, um, particularly for, um, you know, senior female um, leaders. And you know, it's been an incredible experience and one that I'm, in, you know, so proud of to have built a team and to be making a difference now um, with, with, with the organisation, you know, where it's at. And I was speaking to one of your colleagues last week and she mentioned that she's been taking Arabic lessons. Is that something that you've been doing as well? And how's your Arabic coming along? Well, my Arabic is uh, probably not as good as some of my colleagues, um, but actually I do enjoy languages. And um, when I was uh, younger, studied quite a lot of European languages. Um, so, you know, I I'm learning. I, I think some of them are a lot better, but actually, you know, it goes to the point that one of the things that we've really tried to do, and particularly um, during this COVID crisis, is to ensure that the whole organisation in London feels close even though we're all located at a distance and so one of our younger um, colleagues had had designed this idea of wouldn't it be wonderful to have Arabic lessons um, she is herself from the region and so she started this up before the crisis and so everybody's been continuing but we've actually done much more than that we've designed a whole different sort of set of communities as we call them which was really much, very much something um, that our colleagues asked for. So we now have, you know, regular exercise sessions. We have coffee afternoons. We have book clubs. We have quiz nights. We have support for people who are struggling with homeschooling. Uh, we even have some cooking lessons. Um, one of our colleagues, um, his wife is a professional chef um, um, based in Bahrain. So, um, you know, we've been having wonderful cooking lessons as to how you can chef Middle Eastern delicacies in the comfort of your own home. And I think, you know, all of these things have just, I think it's humanized the workplace so much. Uh, you know, and it's a strange thing when 
you know, people welcome you into their home through Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Skype or whatever they use. And suddenly you start to understand more about their life and how they work and the stresses and strains. And, you know, you touched earlier on the whole aspect of mental health. And, and this is something that we simply can't take for granted. But I, but I really do believe when you can actually understand everybody's sort of entire life, um, then you hopefully can help them through those those more difficult moments, such as we're facing now. Mm. So do you think that the coronavirus and being in lockdown has accelerated the strengthening and development of those communities? Well, absolutely, because many of them didn't exist before. Mm. So the big question, of course, now that people are asking is, can we be certain that we'll continue it when we find ourselves back in an office environment? Mm -hmm. And I think the short answer is definitely yes. So probably like many businesses, we've been going through quite a detailed exercise, you know, asking our colleagues, what made a difference during this period of lockdown? Um, What would you personally like to do differently? What do you think we should be doing differently as an organization? And gathering all of that feedback and then distilling it into a series of, you know, well, what are the sort of quick wins? What are the things we can do now? What are the things we need to be a bit more thoughtful about? But having that sense of of directional change, absolutely. I mean, I I think if people don't use this moment in time as an opportunity to accelerate some of the good things that they were doing within their business, um, then I think it will be a great loss. So, you know, we're not going to go back to life as normal, um, you know, whatever people think. So we have to make the best of it. And, you know, creating a kind of unified organization that moves forward with probably faster pace towards a common goal. I think that would be a wonderful outcome. Something that we've been talking to a lot of businesses about is the let's not just say let's not just scrap 2020 and wipe the slate clean at 2021 because there will be, will be positives that we need to capture and and build on as you say yeah so so it's been a very colleague driven process that then I, I think absolutely I mean I think it has to be I mean when you have a group of people working remotely um, that historically have worked in an office you have to adapt you have to do something differently and I think it's wonderful the extent to which people have come forward with new and good ideas. You know, hopefully we've managed to embrace most of them. But at the end of the day, you know, we are only defined by the people that we work alongside for the common goal of looking after our clients and making a difference in the world. And I think the rather wonderful thing about, you know, all that we see around us is I think there is a recognition that particularly people in finance need to do something differently. You know, do I think we will travel less as a result of this? Yes, I do. Do I think we will use technology far more perhaps than even we thought? Yes, I think we we will do. Do I think this will lead to a greater ability to recruit, you know, from a wider talent pool? Um, because we've actually recruited and onboarded seven or eight people during this lockdown crisis. <laughs> Some of our colleagues, wonderful colleagues, have never worked today in the office yet. And, you know, yet they've embraced it. They've kind of got on with it. I'm sure it hasn't always been straightforward. But I think so much is now possible. And I think that's what we've got to sort of keep the essence of. What's the art of the possible? 
don't keep sort of putting roadblocks in the way, but think about potential. Mm. You, you've talked um, throughout this conversation about kind of social impact and the importance of that. And it would be remiss of me not to talk about the drive that you're putting behind the climate crisis. So beyond your role at GIB, you're also involved in Carbon Disclosure Project and also the Clean Air Fund. And you've been campaigning about the climate crisis for a long time now. Um, I, I dug out in the archives an article from uh, four or five years ago in The Guardian where you were saying within the last 12 months, you've been speaking to the CEOs of major corporates in Europe who just don't believe it's real and they didn't feel like it's something that they should be bothered about. Um, and you were talking about it being scary how little discussion there is at boardroom level about whether climate change, we call it the climate crisis now, um, is a risk at all. And so how how is the dial shifted? Because there's been some conversations about one of the side effects of lockdown is noticing the the cleaner skies and the the immediate change in air pollution um, with less planes being up in the sky. So what do you think businesses can do to harness the positives in that sense? And do you think that our views are finally shifted? Well, I think this crisis has, um, you know, had many consequences, um, you know, some tragic, um, some very, very challenging. But I think one of the positive things, if I can call it that, has been, I think there finally is a realisation that the planet um, is talking to us. And the number of, of conversations I've had in the past few weeks where people have, have openly called out things like I can now breathe again in my home city. I had this wonderful conversation with a with a friend of mine who has a beautiful garden in South London but she said you know historically I could never smell anything in it because there was so much pollution from the air and from the street that you know I would walk into my garden and it would look nice but it wouldn't smell. And she told me the other day that, you know, since the lockdown, all of the plants are finally able to do their thing. And it's just beautiful. People have commented that they can hear birds. I mean, you know, all of these things were going on around us. Why did we not see it? You know, what what were the blinkers that we were wearing? Uh, and have they finally fallen away? So, you know, unsurprisingly, I am really pleased that finally, finally, the dial seems to have shifted. I hope, though, that we don't go back to some of the practices that were very damaging for the climate. You know, I think that, you know, we absolutely should be doing as much as we can as individuals and as corporates to ensure that the planet is a safer and better place to live for our children and grandchildren. And, you know, not only, as you said, in my role at GIB, do I take this seriously, but, you know, I am incredibly proud to be the chair of both GDP and the Clean Air Fund both of which are organizations that are working tirelessly to shine a light on, on these areas, whether it's, you know, air pollution and the fact that 7 million people die every year as a result of air pollution and the work that, you know, Jane and the team are doing at the Clean Air Fund. Extraordinary. And then at CDP, which actually is going to be celebrating its, um, you know, 20th anniversary um, over the course of the next year, you know, again, another organization that has worked tirelessly around data and disclosure and transparency. And I certainly think that, you know, if there's another significant outcome of crisis, 
it's that, you know, pe people have more data. I mean, perhaps in the past, people wanted to deny what was going on because the data wasn't there. And there are certainly parts where, you know, we still need to plug those gaps. But I think, you know, the science is irrefutable. And, um, you know, we should all be working to make this a better, a better place to be, a better place to live. And if there's one way that we can make a difference, let's hope that was it. Catherine, it's been wonderful speaking to you this morning. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with host Gemma Soul and today's guest speaker, Catherine Garrett-Cox. I find Catherine fascinating to listen to and she has this very open and straightforward nature that makes her come across as humble and inclusive and also authentic in her leadership. I asked one of Catherine's colleagues what she was like as a CEO and she described her as very inspiring, particularly in the way she presents herself and her passion for changing the world to be better. She said that she knows everyone and she genuinely cares about us. A rare CEO. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to hear other episodes, other interviews, you can find our podcast through our website, www schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available across major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.